Nature Works podcast. Conversations with extraordinary guests who are working to protect, regenerate, and better understand the natural world. With your host, Mike Weeks. Welcome to episode 18 of Nature Works podcast. In this episode, I am interviewing, conversing, and learning from the rather magnificent Kate Larson, who is an environmentalist and a social sustainability expert who specialises in apparel, all the stuff that you and I wear every day, maybe not quite as much as some people out there on the streets, in my case, seeing as I mostly live in flip-flops and baggy old shorts. But Kate is a specialist in apparel and other supply chains and amongst her many expert roles she's worked as a factory worker rights advocate and as you know we've all heard about what goes on in sweatshops all over the world well Kate's one of those people that makes sure that people are looked after they get fair wages and they get fair working conditions she's also one of the first corporate responsibility managers for big brands such as uh, Burberry Asia and she's led collaborations with my favorite company Patagonia and other outdoor companies and sporting companies such as Columbia, Nike, Adidas, as we say in England, or Adidas for American listeners. And Kate has also advised Kering, who are the former owners of brands such as Volcom, Puma, and famous surfer Kelly Slater's Outer Known. All of that, and she's led work groups with ASOS, Superdry, and other major retailers. So in this episode, Kate schools me because I am the ignoranus with the questions up his sleeve. She scores me on ethical business, supply chains, workers' rights, the environmental impact of buying new clothes, which many of us do far too often. And she takes us on a comprehensive deep dive into how and where our everyday clothing items come from. And of course, at what cost? None of this stuff is for free, folks, even if you're getting it in the bargain basement. Now, if you've enjoyed this episode and others, please share it with folks who you know give a rat's ass about the natural world. NatureWorks podcast aims to always provide honest and unbiased insights into how we can help protect, restore and regenerate the natural world. And we're doing that right here in Bali, where the podcast is recorded on our own little farm, which if anyone is passing by, you are welcome to come and see us. Uh, just go to the NatureWorks website natureworks.tv send us an email and you'd be welcome to get a tour of what now is was once uh, damaged rice paddies and has now become something of a little patch of heaven so uh, we'll only ultimately protect what we care about and these conversations these podcast conversations hopefully will inspire you to respect and have a little awe and maybe even more love for the only place that we can call home. It's interesting because um, yep. uh, I've never done it this way before where we have lunch and then we've had a walk around and we've had a chat mm. about all these different subjects. Mm. Typically what I've done is I've I've avoided contact with the person Ooh. and then uh, the lovely Grace, who acts as producer, has yeah. done all the, inter uh, all the um, warm up right. bit where she's got people on board and then I come straight in and I've saved all the questions. Right. So um, I already feel like I've got a jump on this one because okay. we've already had some good conversations yeah, yeah. um and uh, an okay lunch uh, uh, okay, uh, uh, yeah. there's going to be a report on the lunch <laughs> Beautiful a few things a few things were overcooked <laughs> uh we've watched a dog 
chase the farm chickens. <laughs> just, just fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if um, uh, for the listeners of this podcast, if you can imagine me in my sandals, Birkenstocks, running around a large chicken coop or pen, I should say, which is two inches covered in water from the rain, chasing a dog that's chasing 20 chickens. It looked good anyway. (laughs) I I was so tempted to video. That that was the warm-up for this. I thought it would be too cruel. And I was trying to look as uh, elegant as possible. Oh, it was brilliant. Which is like a giraffe trying to ice skate. It probably (laughs) looks like. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. Don't agree with me. so. <laughs> oh, All right. So fun. down to serious matters. Yeah. yeah. So um, on that uh, energized note. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I think yeah. that's it. We're done. We can we can call that it's a wrap. It's been a good podcast yeah. already. Yeah. So, I, so I don't know where to start because um, I, this subject matter is not something that I am in any shape or form an expert in, or or really even that schooled in. I read a book a few years ago which was by a gentleman who was a quaker who you may know uh he's famous in the anti in the in the slavery world as in he's famous for being anti-slavery yes i can't remember i had a lovely lunch with him as well but the book shocked me because it pointed out that some 50 million people in the world are in forced labor yeah and or in slavery or slavery modern, rather, modern slavery, I say. Yeah, Sla- modern modern slavery and forced yeah, labor yeah so that and includes sexual slavery and things under that number. right yeah, yeah exactly um and i know you're we're going to speak, speak mostly today about supply chains and brands yeah. and and the likes but um for those people who've probably never heard that statistic before yeah to to what degree of that 50 million people or so do you think are actually in the day-to-day day supply of products to the likes of you and I in the brands that we yeah. enjoy every day. And well, we can't put a number on it because uh, slavery, so to speak, to use that word, or forced labor as a, as the US government would call it, is invisible. Um, it's not people in chains. It's often very clean and tidy workplaces, factories, you know, you can eat the eat off the floor kind of factory. And yet, uh, if we take PPE from Malaysia, uh, rubber gloves, most Malaysian people, uh, if they work in a factory, would work in supervisor at least, if not management and owner. And most workers come from Bangladesh, India, etc., Nepal, Indonesia. Um, and when we say slavery and forced labor, what we mean is that instead of I go to work in another country, the employer might pay my airfare or I paid it myself and then I get paid when I get there. Um, these people have had to pay agents fees. They may, and generally it's about the fact that they were cheated. They were told, there's this fantastic job for you in this fancy Malaysian factory. You're going to earn a lot more than you could have earned back in Bangladesh or Indonesia. But then along the way, they start to be charged these fees they weren't told about. And particularly after arrival. And that leaves them in a situation where you're earning maybe it's a thousand or so every month, but you owe five to 10,000 US dollars. And then the bit that makes it worthy of using the word slavery is also that if you were to now try to leave, your passport might've been retained anyway, so you can't. Um, And even if you did have your passport, which we work on in that work of trying to end this, 
there may be threats to your family back home in the village, etc. Um, your your personal security may be at risk, and so you're stuck. And people end up having to stay in these working conditions for, or, or I say people, but if I took those Malaysian glove, rubber glove factories making 80% of the world's rubber gloves, or maybe it's a larger percent, um, the majority of men in those factories, um, yeah, stuck there for years. And um, then also, <laughs> to, to layer on further, we then find that they're in... Uh, very poor living conditions. So, to be very specific, uh, you know, nothing wrong with workers living in a dormitory. You know, I've lived in them in other countries and I worked abroad earlier in my career, and yet this is um, 20 men to a room. It's really hard to sleep because there's so many people there. You don't have sufficient space. It's unhygienic. The safety management's poor. Um, etc. So that's not to say every situation is like that, but that is a lot of what's being seen. But that slavery piece is about not being able to leave, having your passport or papers retained, threats against your family if you did try to leave because you've been charged unfair fees that were not told to you up front and, and are largely illegal these days anyway. Um, so yeah, and it happens to people who are very vulnerable, um, you know, a huge proportion um, Bangladeshi, so going to the Middle East, we've just heard that about FIFA and the World Cup and the construction workers, so I think if people can recall that, that's a classic example. Um, Indian workers as well to, to the Middle East, um, but also in the UK, and we've seen a lot of it with Eastern Europeans. Um, London, construction buildings eight, ten years ago being built by what was discovered to be Romanians 10, 20 to a room sharing a bedroom, um, you know, not paid their wages. Um, bosses keeping wages in the worst forms, um, people actually enslaved, like really couldn't even run away. And there have been some quite high profile um, cases in the UK under the Modern Slavery Act um, of um, jailing, thank goodness, of perpetrators. Um, but that is a supply chain. You know, some of us end up renting those offices in those fancy London mm. buildings. Um, and then somebody built that building. and procured construction services who went to a subcontractor and subcontractor and subcontractor and that's where we end up with these rogue players halfway down um i guess there's also i was thinking about the uk because i actually wrote on here i think when i was looking at your website about the uk forced labor i was like what how can that even be a thing in the mm -hmm. uk and then it i, I remembered some <coughs> years ago my grandmother uh, bless her soul and may she rest in peace she fell in love with an indian guy and uh, she, th this was in her 70s when she thought it was all done because my grandfather had died. Anyway, he uh, had come in as an illegal immigrant. Wow. And he managed to get his status because he'd been in the country for a certain amount of time. Um, but the stories that he told me about when he came in as an illegal immigrant where he was being forced to work in kitchens mm -hmm. and being paid £1.50 or £2. Exactly. Pounds. Yeah. And so this wouldn't even been that long ago. This would have been exactly. 20 years ago. Yeah. Uh, so I guess there's this invisible world to us, isn't there? Yeah. I mean, to someone like me who works on it, it's more visible. It's not, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> but, sure. um, and I, I don't mean to laugh there, um, but um, you touched on exactly what I was saying there, that you might see someone, a Vietnamese worker, doing your nails and they look happy enough, but that doesn't mean that they're not in a slavery situation. And they're being monitored. Or the guys who are washing your car or the people who are picking your vegetables or the, or the workers in the warehouse shipping our goods 
via Amazon, Korea, whatever. Um, I probably shouldn't name Amazon there because I don't think we've had a specific case associated with them in the UK, but we have with certainly many other brands sort of in the past 10 years were discovered to have, you know, warehouses shipping their online shipping for all of us and um, that the people running the warehouse had subcontracted labor to contractors and let's say there's 500 workers there, 20 of them were brought in by this rogue agent who had people who could not leave, were not getting paid, were made to live in um, horrific housing and and um, under serious threat. Um, and, and there's been cases I've read about of horrific violence as well. So that's the extreme end of it, but it doesn't look like shackles. It's It's not slavery as we know of under the transatlantic trade of um, Africans it's um, as what, you said, and what's visible. that the transatlantic trade of Africans? I'm meaning the mean? slavery trade the original 500 years yeah, ago 500, yeah, yeah, yeah yeah okay um, it's not people with ropes around them it's but well they're met- they're, they're invisible ropes metaphorical yeah ones, absolutely and if you go onto the website of Unseen UK who is the leading charity working on anti-slavery in the UK um, they'll show videos which teach you about how if you see people who um, sort of seem to have difficulty communicating and things and, and seem to possibly be in a coercion, you're, you're worried about them. They don't seem to be able to speak up about things. Um, you can call the UK Modern Slavery Helpline number and just say, I'm, I just wanted to report this case because I'm suspicious and maybe there's nothing, maybe there is something. And that may feed into UK police investigations these days now that we have a Modern Slavery Act and we have the Modern Slavery Helpline. So, And when did that come in place? Because that, to, help even as you're saying that, it's like, <laughs> wait a second, the UK yeah. in the 21st century, yeah. it has a modern s- slavery. Yeah, so 2015, the Act came in. Um, it's not to say that sort of slavery was legal before that. It's not really the point. It was to define more clearly um, in the UK. But the point that I work on, uh, more importantly, is um, the requirement that companies publish, or large companies, 36 million pounds turnover a year with any UK operation, publish a modern slavery statement saying that they're making efforts, which unfortunately many do and then don't really make efforts because the quality of that statement is not defined by by law, um, but nevertheless, it's driven a lot of companies to wake up and and as you're doing right now, say, "Holy cow! I didn't realise this was a thing," um, and gosh, maybe it's out there and I'm not noticing, um, and we're complicit. And I guess also, if you're an, a British worker, particularly if you're a trade union related worker and you're trying to protect. I mean, so importantly right now with the cost of living crisis, trying to protect the ability of your average British worker, blue collar worker, let's say, to live in a power crisis and a cost of living crisis, being undercut by people not being paid at all Hmm. is just ludicrous um, in in this day and age of of a supposed developed country. (laughs) So um, obviously morally it's horrific, um, but business-wise it's... Certainly doesn't make sense for for workforces, and then if you're worried about risk as a business, it doesn't make sense either. Um, well, one of the points that I read in the book that I'll reference, but I can't remember what it was called because it was a couple of years ago that I read it. But he, the the author made a real stance around the big brands like Apple, yeah, knowing that a lot of their the components that come mm-hmm. into their mm-hmm boards the raw materials the, chips, the raw yeah. materials 
are actually coming from enforced labor. Cobalt. And, and it actually special. sounds more like slavery than the... Yeah, what we, what the, we see in the Democratic, Democratic yeah, Republic in of Congo, Congo yeah. um, is, is pretty much proper it's slavery. slavery yeah. But then we also see child labor, um, nine or 12-year-old kids being made to work. And, and then kind of overlapping all of that is that it's what's called artisanal mining, which is a nice word for... Artisanal mining can be a great thing, and 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 small scale mining, um, fantastic. But unfortunately, what we've seen a lot of is is no safety standards, and um, which is incredibly dangerous in the mining industry. So especially in the lungs as well. Accumulation of of those things, um, and and then I guess fourthly is that the reason this conversation came to prominence was the conflict minerals aspect of it. That that this the use or the pushing, taking of villages and enslaving them and making them dig for cobalt and gold and whatever um, was fuel was was to was to fund and and fuel um, conflict. So so there's a whole lot of aspects at play there, and then there's an environmental impact as well. Um, but we can say that there's an environmental and safety issue around all mining. Um, so yeah, I mean when you say that. Apple didn't know and wasn't doing anything. Um, I'm a big advocate that especially large firms like Apple can do, can all pretty much always do more on these fronts. Um, but that said, they're doing a lot. Um, and I wouldn't diss that, so to speak. I just sort of, there's there's some great organizations around, be it Global Witness, Greenpeace, um, many more who would clarify what else apple etc but it's not just apple any tech firm anything you're buying which is technology or a car has what's historically called conflict minerals um in it and and the industry as a whole need to work together with policymakers to change this nobody can do it on their own you can't expect apple to fix this by themselves even if they should be doing more so the the part of the book that really stuck in my mind apart from the ridiculous conditions and the amount of people that are in those types of conditions was the fact that companies like apple not just pointing at apple it's only th two years ago i read the book and i can't remember the others samsung samsung and Acer and and any Dell technology and, you've yeah, got basically yeah. yep and he was saying that um they've known for a very long time that their the the components and the the supply chain has yeah. had small hands sure. on it and yeah. unfair yeah. forced labor etc but They've they've not been able to actually make a public point of um, undermining or stopping it because a they're still reliant on it, but b there would be a, a mere culpa required. They would have to do a retrospective. Well, we knew and we're sorry, but we're not doing it anymore, mm. and so they're somewhat trapped in there. Whereas with the environmental issues. Mm. you can actually say holy shit we now we are really monitoring our carbon and we realize that we made a mistake it's it doesn't seem as sticky to yeah. ruin their reputation to say that they always knew they were putting co2 out but then but now they're making a change to that they're doing carbon credits or they're yeah whereas slavery it's it's like one of probably one of the worst components of human nature to force other human beings into those kinds of conditions so the term slavery is heavy and weighted. Okay. The and yes, I'm not saying labor. that isn't. Yeah, you know, I agree. Forced labor, whatever. But also, times pretty slavery in in Congo. Um, but regardless, um, from where I sit, at least, um, Apple have 
been one of the few who have openly admitted over the years at times that um, these issues are going on. You know, they're incredibly careful with lawyers how they word it. But um, at times, and, and the problem we have as an industry is particularly with Apple, as soon as they admit it, the media turns into, Apple has child labor mm. in their supply chain. It's like, well, sorry, yeah. the whole tech industry has child labor in their supply chain, but Apple has child labor in their supply chain is a clickbait and sells. And, you know, Xiaomi has child labor in their supply chain, just doesn't sell articles or HP or Dell or whatever. Nobody cares. So, so it's kind of, it, it's a frustrating situation that Apple were opening up a lot more in the past 10, 12 years and have sort of been, kind of got more quiet lately, um, which is infuriating because we do need a lot of transparency and openness. And when I've worked in brands, it's, um, I also feel that as each of us speak up about an issue, it makes it safer for the other brands too as well. <laughs> and we can, and then it, it opens up more boardrooms to awareness of the issues as, as we've just done in this past year as well, this is going on. Um, and secondly, oh, well, how are they dealing with it? And oh my goodness, we need to join forces and get them become part of the solution. Whereas if everybody's sitting in a, I'm scared to talk about it situation, the action's not really happening. And sometimes it is behind closed doors, but it makes it harder, a lot harder and without the transparency. So we have essentially what's called a transparency movement going on the past 10 years. Um, under that UK Modern Slavery Act, that piece of legislation I referenced around business reporting is the transparency in supply chains law or clause. Um, and that pulls from the California Transparency in Supply Chains Act, which was the first one in this space. Australia's replicated it. New Zealand's talking about it, um, and that also all pulls somewhat from Dodd-Frank um, clause, which was about transparency in supply chains on conflict minerals, which kicked it all off. And then you have initiatives like Fashion Revolution, where we have the Transparency Index, I've been advisor to them over the years, um, and, and a, a lot of other um, movements pushing particularly the fashion but also the tech sector um, on transparency, and literally using that word transparency a lot, because... As I say, the more we bring, the more we're talking about what's going on, the more safe it is for more players to get in the room and work on the solutions and deliver the solutions together. Although ultimately we've all agreed as an industry, so I say we all, but many of us in the world of sort of business human rights due diligence, which is now the language used, have agreed that essentially what we need is legislation that just requires business to do what needs to be done because we've been trying to drag everyone to the table to get on with the work and some are there and the CEO changes and now they're not there and whatever and and you know, as we're touching on, the impacts are still there on the ground for Congolese people or whoever it may be. Um, so just to finish that off, um, Germany's passed a Supply Chain Human Rights Due Diligence Act. Um, France passed one that wasn't specifically supply chains and the German one's a bit stronger that requires large companies now to not only report, as, as the UK government asked, but behind the reporting to have done <laughs> the work on due diligence, meaning the assess where the risk would be, start to actually assess on the ground. And they're talking first kind of factory production level. So if you took a, a laptop or an iPhone, it would be the, the factory that made the phone, not necessarily the trace. There's been a big debate about whether they, the company should need to trace all the way down to the cobalt. Um, or the cotton or the food <laughs> um, and then 
cause what's called remediation, so influence that improvement. And that's where it gets really sticky because to do that, you need to pay more money maybe. Maybe not, but probably. Um, or at least invest in teaching suppliers to learn or in the, in the Congo case, invest in, as I say, these industry initiatives that are influencing government in a conflict situation is incredibly complex. Um, and then ultimately report on your work there and you're meant to engage stakeholders. So actually talk to affected rights holders, which would be Congolese villagers, which is where we go, well, Apple's sitting over there in Cupertino in Silicon Valley and, you know, and someone needs to talk to Congolese <laughs> villagers. And they, there are efforts where this does happen, um, but for some companies, they haven't been making those efforts. So it feels like a long shot and they're in catch up and going, what? <laughs> I need to get out around the world and find out where the wood comes from. The I, would have, I mean, I, I say this knowing some elements of this whole supply chain piece because of our company, Laconic, and what yeah. we're doing. Yeah. But uh, I'm very new to this. Mm. I mean, I've only been in, in the company a year yep. and a half. And it's certainly not, <clears throat> supply chain monitoring is not even remotely my yeah. ballpark. But it seems to me that it's only now probably because of the maybe social media or access to that kind yeah. of news that people have, companies have really started making an effort. Exactly. And it, so you've been doing this for 15 years, is that what Most, you said? I mean, I've been in corporate social responsibility for 20 years right okay. which is now so how, how have you seen that change over the last 20 years Absolutely. And, and what do you think, think of the, uh, are the are the the nudges or in fact the hand grenades that have made the, the enforce that change i wish the hand grenades <laughs> <laughs> um i think it's more of a, a slow wave um and wave of you know as, as a surfer the waves in the ocean it's building up it's it's coming um or maybe it's lots of waves it's a whole set <laughs> but um but that build up um is is probably what i've seen and i guess so social media absolutely um plays a big role i'm hesitating slightly on that because the past year i would say in particular um I lived in China for close to half my career. I speak Chinese. Um, there were times in China when my internet was open and free and when I could even watch the BBC and now so much is blocked. And so three or four years ago, I would talk a lot about how this growth of both social media and the fact that more and more people are getting phones um, smartphones, um, right down to workers and supply chains, yay, um, means that, um, you know, yes, something happens, it can be videoed faster and, and get out there and hit, hit information. But, but realistically, um, firstly, there's the issue I just mentioned of not just China, but China's the most obvious case of it. Um, you can't just email a video you took of a worker being abused to CNN. Mm, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's not Los Angeles. A, you might be able not be able to get it through. And B, even if you did get it through, some guy might come and knock on your door and take you away to the local police station. So that's where we're at right now on China. We, I, you know, I was just saying to you a few hours ago how 10, 
15 years ago when I lived in China, things were sort of opening up a lot more. And we were in a situation where that could happen. And, and it's, it's, it's heart-wrenching that we're not right now. And I look forward to openness again someday for our Chinese friends. Um, but that's where it's at right now. It's not only China, though. We see similar or movement or similar cracked on, down on human rights and I use the word human rights as a heavy term, just, just on people sharing the truth um, in Cambodia, in Bangladesh, in, you know, in, in many other countries these days. So that, can't, that you know, on the one hand, yes, we have the social media. And if you took the fire in Urumqi uh, two months ago, which this is Xinjiang, the Western region, the Uyghur region um, of, of China, um, was it 20 weaker people died in a fire in an apartment building that got out on Western media? It did. Um, thank heavens, um, because that has caused attention of Chinese Han Chinese people to the plight of, of weaker people in China and, and safety standards and things. But, um, there are many other cases that just never get out. Um, even if somebody filmed it, um, and, and that makes this, yes, we've got the technology, but you, you face so much risk to, to share that. But, but what I also wanted to say, sorry, on that point was if I'm a Bangladeshi woman or an Indian woman working in a garment factory and not a very nice one, which is a subcontractor, let's say, and, and let's say surreptitiously making for a brand. So an illegal, as we call it, subcontractor, they're not a declared subcontractor making for a famous brand or a less famous brand. Um, there may have been no training to me that this abuse by a male supervisor to me as a female is not okay. Mm. And why would I video it if that's just what happens in garment factories and that's just what we have to put up with and who, who's going to care anyway. And, Oh, other people think this is bad. <laughs> you know, you got to kind of sort of let alone on safety, let alone on wage payments, etc. The fact that people just they're, they're they're desperate for work, and um, so yes, we do get stories out, but there's a there's a there's a line where people don't even realise it's a story, shall we say? So that end of the the push for change is coming from the actual workers themselves. What about the other side, which is the consumer, because? So I'm, a, as you've probably heard on this podcast, and people are probably bored to hear it, I'm a massive fan of the brand Patagonia. Yeah. And the reason that I buy from that company is because of their ethical stance. Yeah. It's also, they also make nice stuff. But it's really the, the Yvonne Chouinard's yeah. ethics yeah. in that company all along. Yeah. Now, I know they're not the only ones. And yeah. actually, I was shocked to hear. I had a meeting with somebody at H&M a few weeks ago. Yeah. And I said, uh, you know, it's a shame you guys aren't a bit more like Patagonia. They said to me, uh, we spend in our in our sustainability program, we spend three, no, one and a half times annually what they've spent in total over their entire history. Really? Mm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. So, but we don't talk about it because we yeah. see that just as our yeah. duty. And yeah. they're Swedish companies. So no, I know. And, and I've worked and... with many of those H&M ethical trade and sustainability team over the years. And they do, every project has H&M involved, you name it. But that blew me away. Doesn't and doesn't blow me the the number blows me away, but the the relativity doesn't blow me away. Well, I, yeah. I just assumed that all of their stuff was made in sweatshops, and because of the bad, what's a bad sweatshop? Had a few you know, years ago. this is a, this is something I throw at listeners. What's a sweatshop? Um, basically, you know, essentially, we're saying a factory where working safety is worse 
people work really long hours and they're not paid properly. Well, unfortunately, that's where most of your stuff is made. Yeah, exactly. That's <laughs> but, what I assume a sweatshop would be. But, but yeah, you know, what I'm trying to say though is that, like, even in Italy, even in the UK, even in the US, um, most of the garment industry, excessive working hours in the high season are the norm. Some workers not getting paid the legal overtime rates is the norm. And any auditor can find 50 social safety issues. It's just that, yeah, some factories have better safety than others. So uh, as a layman, my perception of the sweatshop is the one where there's small children running around with with <laughs> yeah. ba- bags, okay. bags of cloth. Yeah, and okay. The, and the okay. parents are barely making a dollar or two nice a day distinction. or something. Right. So making, barely making a dollar a day, to a day is, is most of Asia production of our garments. Yeah, that's what I thought. Um, yeah. Bangladesh, Cambodia, India, I could go on. Um, China, 3000 a month, what, I don't know, you know, $10 a day. Um, whereas um, the little children running around, I have seen a few 10, 11-year-olds in some backstreet India garment factories. Um, you'd, yeah, you'd sometimes see children in the workplace not because they're working, but because their parents don't have anywhere to, to take their kids. Um, and often in China, if we'd find child labor, it was in the holiday season. Um, the parents would be like, well, I couldn't find anywhere for my 13-year-old and I don't want to leave her in the village. I feel she's vulnerable. That that doesn't make it okay. We would still intervene and get that young person removed from a dangerous environment um, and work with that those parents on what, what's suitable and safe um, and make the factory pay for it which then feeds into the whole dynamic of pricing and everything. But um, but l- there are cases of kids being made to do work. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it, I guess what I'm getting at on the point of like, what's a sweatshop is, yeah, little kids running around is not necessarily the norm. Um, and there's a lot of work on child labor. We've That's made a, quite a bit of progress on child labor. <laughs> yeah. um, we still have those challenges I'm referencing around child labor or children being in a workplace. Um, actually, post-COVID, because Western brands didn't pay their suppliers in Bangladesh, there were factories who had made for leading US, European, British retailers, big brands everybody shops from. So you can go to the Pay Up Fashion website if you want to know who. Um, and had been told to buy this fabric, you know, these labels, these buttons, you name it, in this brand's branding, sew it all up, pack, you know, wash it, iron it, label it, pack it, everything. It's sitting in the container ready to go, and the brand turned around and said, we're not going to pay you for it. And people had done weeks of work on those millions of dollars. of. So, yeah, we see a bit more of child labor emerging as an issue because parents um, are struggling because they they had months of not earning anything and they were already on two dollars a day so um we've we've taken a few steps back um but but i guess my point on the switch up one is the issue is more which you know you kind of nailed it on the one or two dollars a day the issue is more let's a push that companies pay more to their suppliers because it's one or two dollars a day because that's all that can be afforded and B, push that companies monitor better that their suppliers do pay that to their workers, which some do and some don't. Doesn't this, though, raise the, I guess, the bigger question? It's almost an existential one about the fact that we as consumers, maybe not you and I, and I don't mean that as a 
in a privileged perspective, but I don't buy shit. I don't buy cheap clothing. I like to buy the most expensive stuff that's going to last me forever. And yet H&M. <laughs> yeah, but I don't shop in H&M, right? I know, I've but, but you just heard, an H&M and store. I would agree with that H&M person that they, I, I know they have 150 people or something who work on ethical trade and yeah. sustainability. Well, they things. said to me, here's, here's the kicker of that. I said, so try and be more like Patagonia. And they said, well, we do all of this and we've yep. got all this incredible yep. sustainability programs yep. and they're looking at biodiversity programs yep. and they have a biodiversity department. Yep. So by the end of the conversation, I was blown away by H&M's standards. Yep. And then I said, but why don't you advertise that? And they said, well, two reasons. One, we just see it as our duty. Yep. I like that. Two, our customers, it's not important to them. That's not a factor to the majority of our customers because we've we've tested that and it doesn't make a huge difference. Mm, the majority of customers who are, who are buying low-cost clothing are coming in because on Friday night they're going out and they want something new to wear. This isn't their words. This sure. Is I'm making the assumption. Certainly a percentage of their customers. When you go to Patagonia yeah. and you spend $300 on a jacket or $70 on a T-shirt, mm-hmm. it's not the same as $15 on a T-shirt you're going to wear for a few times. $5 let's not on say a T-shirt. Is yeah. that how much they cost yeah. in, in yeah. a store like that? Yeah. yeah. So let's not pick on H&M because I, I'm actually yeah. no, they're not. quite fond of them. Though. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> in fact, go buy H&M. Well, but only if you need it. Uh, so, But the point there is about this consumer yeah we as consumers need to if we if we actually do give a shit yeah about what's going on in developing countries surely we need to either be willing to pay more yeah or we need to be buying less but if we buy less than those people are out of jobs in industries that they've become well, yes reliant no. upon yeah yeah so just to pick up on the people don't care about it um a people don't know about it so it's not important to them i didn't say they didn't yeah. care I, there's a there's a okay, okay. distinction. Yeah, there. Ma, but, there is but a distinction. It's the same, it's the same line. It's of not thinking. important to them. Okay. You know, when we go to shop for something, we're shopping with a certain budget. Um, we may not have much time. We don't like X, Y, or Z fabric, but we do like a different one. Do they have it in my size? You know, do I like the style? Um, and as I said, price. And even me. There are stores that I boycott on the high street. Which ones? Which ones? Which ones? Come on. Give us your list. <laughs> okay. I'm going to name one here. So I'll never go there. Scottish Woolen Mill. Never heard of them. Who sells sort of like lovely looking Scottish woolen sweaters and scarves and whatever for not just tourists, but around the country. And from everything I understand, they never gave any compensation in the case of the Rana Plaza collapse in Bangladesh where 1,200 workers died. Uh, where the building with five garment factories collapsed and was flattened. it their factory though, or was it? Uh, they no, they were, were one they of were there were there were thirty brands buying from the five garment factories in that building, um, and there were over there were basically every other buyer, Western buyer from and many Japanese and others from um, Bangladesh at the time of, of garments contributed to the compensation oh, they did, fund. Yeah. So they were the only one. And, and, contributed millions in some cases so reinforcing just, the uh, cliche of being scottish yeah? oh no I, I love scottish people i don't even never even cross my <laughs> mind that one um yeah no I, I i think it maybe it touches on your point a moment ago like awareness um and is it important so to your point on you don't know them because you don't buy scottish sweaters you're not like a tourist in I england in right as well. yeah you don't need them and even if you were did need them in the uk you don't really shop at a place like that because you're not sort of a tourist in the UK. Um, 
that plays in massively. And this is why as a movement for ethical trade, sustainability, so the environmental safety and labor rights or labor standards piece of supply chains, we now have this movement around business human rights due diligence for environmental and social and supply chains. And because the onus needs to come off the consumer. You should not have to, by the time you've you know, made it through the rain after a long day at work and you don't have much money and you really need a sweater and there's only three stores open and they, that's the only one that had a nice fabric you liked that had anything in your size, you should not have to also try to figure out which one was ethical and which one was eco. When, where are they, you know, yes, I wish there was more written in stores and I love that Marks and Spencer talk about their plan A and whatever, but really like you've got enough other things and your child is screaming or whatever it might be. Um, the last thing you should have to do is go, oh, now, oh, hang on, was it an ethical one? You know, there's only three brands on the high street that can sell in your price range anyway. It's not your responsibility whether they were complicit in workers not getting paid properly. That should be with the business. And that's why we have a movement for business human rights due diligence law. So Germany's passed one, France has one, the EU directive draft is out and should be finalized this year. And there is a movement, ASOS CEO among many other UK CEOs has asked the UK government to pass a business human rights due diligence and supply chains law as well. Because the onus should be on business to do the right thing. We know what the right thing looks like. It's enshrined under UN guiding principles on business and human rights. I'm getting a bit boring here and you know, but the standards are all there. There. We know how to do it. Um, Levi's and Puma and whatever have been doing it for 25 years. Yeah. 30 years is when Levi's did their first code of conduct and said, oh, let's start looking at the factories making our jeans. Um, and, and we know we don't have every answer, but we know what like the 80-20 rule looks like in this case of, of better looks like. And yet there are companies who do nothing. And... And then we're all in confusion. And even me, as someone who has friends who are in these roles and all these brands, I can't keep up with which brand does better than the other one and da-da-da because it changes by the day. <laughs> and I shouldn't have to. <laughs> you shouldn't have to. You should know, as Greenpeace has advocated, that there are not toxins from the production of the dyes for your T-shirts. You know, that, that, that um, they've got a detox campaign they've, they've run for 15 years, which has had a massive impact in causing the zero discharge of hazardous chemicals initiative, which is fantastic. And that's finally fed into these laws I just referenced. And that's the way it should be. Y you know, I have a master's of science in environmental management trying to look at water issues. And even I can't. And, I, and I've tested on wastewater treatment and pollution and supply chains and things and wrote my thesis on that. But... You know, even I can't keep up with that level. It requires industry-wide standards and uh, enforcement that big business who do have <laughs> have um, those profits going to investors and execs at the top should actually spend some of that on making sure that they've guided their suppliers and enforced that and paid that their suppliers are doing it the ethical and eco ways the world needs. Are any of these big brands actually owning the factories that are supplying rather than just yeah. buying from them or sure. giving them it's very rare um louis vuitton own a couple that make some of their bags but they also make other products but that um, one is that in a developing country so they or have they used to have one in india i believe they still do but then it's france and at one point they had one in california wait so I, 20, again, I'm sure. 20 of uh, i don't i've never bought a louis vuitton bag Me i imagine they're tens of thousands of dollars yes or, or thousands to tens thousands of thousands to, yeah well, well i know I there's a burkey like isn't there 500 to 
50,000. Well, yeah. I know there's a Berkey that goes for 70 or 80 because I remember reading Probably, it in some absurd... I don't know about that one. <laughs> but um, um, those are being made in developing countries and then sold, obviously, for more... I believe they still have the India factory. I might be wrong, um, but I, they did at one point. Okay, so they're one who has a yep. small amount of their New own. Balance um, had their factory near Boston, their headquarters, and a factory in the UK... One or other of those is shut down again. I can't remember which, sorry. Just like everyone else, every brand I'm mentioning here still has plenty of suppliers making all the other products. In the New Balance case, you can choose to buy a made in the USA, UK, or a made in Indonesia, Vietnam, whatever. And that's, you know, I've been into factories making, worked with brands like New Balance on issues in Vietnam, and they do really good work and everything. So it comes down to <laughs> a lot of other factors. Um, who else has a factory? Hermes, I believe, own one or two. Again, like that doesn't mean the whole product range is made in their factories. Uh, anyone else? But none of these big high street brands like uh, Zara or no. H&M. Inditex, who owns Zara, have a small network of suppliers. I think it's around Madrid near their headquarters or wherever their headquarters is in Spain. Um, that they've worked with very closely for a long time and was their core original supply chain for the Zara brand, um, but then you know moved quite heavily into a lot of Asia sourcing, particularly Bangladesh. Um, and I, I believe used the Asia sourcing for sort of more, uh, sorry, the Spain sourcing for more f speed. So it doesn't, it's not on a ship, it's, it's just pop it over from Spain to the London or whatever, and maybe the higher end as well, or slightly more expensive lower volumes that kind of because that would to me would seem the i mean i know it's not probably useful for their business model yeah. it's not profitable as profitable well, there Plus we it go. and that's the big issue isn't it <laughs> yeah oh right. sorry burberry on a, on a trench coat factory as well in the do uk you, which you, is one of the nicest factories i've ever seen do you know of any so yvon shuna talks about when he went organic yeah in all of his t-shirts and yeah. everyone uh, and maybe i'm wrong here but uh, the majority of his board said you can't do it because it's 30% uh, more expensive and you can't sell a t-shirt for whatever it was, 50 bucks, yeah. when t-shirts were going for 10 yeah. or 15. Well, they sold out almost immediately and they continuously said... Which it's is been why I'm hesitating on the comment you heard from that H&M person because that's one of thousands of H&M employees who... Well, hey, uh, without naming names, he is in the position of knowing... Sure, no, I, I, I know who's in question as well and I know that he has access to a lot of information around that. Um, but we all know that kind of data can be looked at from one angle or another, or this test, this, this study said that, and this study said that. So, I mean, I've been in H&M stores and the consciousness logo on things was growing over the years. Is that they're H&M conscious. In the past year though, they What's were- H&M conscious? That was their kind of eco right. label line where they were doing a lot of recycled and fabrics that, as well. is that more expensive than the regular line? No. So this is my question here is that are there other companies that have taken the the leap to go organic or more ethically uh -huh. sourced or which costs mm -hmm. more money mm -hmm. there's no doubt about that mm -hmm. and they've seen and then they pass that cost on to the consumer sure. and that they've seen a stabilization or an uplift even because that's the big concern isn't it if yeah. you're a retailer and people are obsessed by buying cheap clothes yeah. like people yeah. are buying uh, cheap food yeah why fast food restaurants do so well um it's all about cost it's all about and especially like you said earlier when people are struggling yeah. to pay their heating bills and exactly. everything but they still want to wear a new t-shirt yeah or they need a new t-shirt or they need one or, or their need kids a need a new you one. need a, a coat yeah. in You're winter in england 150 yeah. 
cashmere one. And your from, kids unfortunately need one every year or two because they grow out of them. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so it's a, it's not an easy um, equation, is it? To getting that. But it point. is if you look at the payouts going to the CEOs and ah, investors okay. from these companies. Yeah. Okay. So reduce. And that's the, where Yvonne Schoener deserves all the credit that he was like, I don't, you know, I don't need to become a billionaire out of mm. this. I, I want to do the right thing, and. I can critique little areas they haven't done exactly the right thing, but I would ab- am a fan of Patagonia because they've done their best to do the right thing and they've grappled with this conversation of where is the line for us and, and we're willing to um, not take massive bonus, bonus pay. I've worked with execs who were on 250 a year base and then walked away with a million payout two years later and went to another brand and did the same thing. And and yet I'm sitting in a meeting with them and they're debating whether to force the supplier to decrease their price by one cent a piece so that that million, two million margin can be made. That's sick. That's day to day in most brands. And that's not the CEO, that's just an SVP <laughs> you never hear about, who's not in the newspaper who just moves around and that's their whole career. And and that's why I go on about this because, you know, I'm proud of the work I and my teams have done in brands and I, there are some directors and execs who I think are great people who weren't doing it quite that way. Um, and yet I've seen the realities of the fact that most of the industry does. Most of the players at the top, exec teams, I'm not talking about your sourcing manager who's on 30k a year or something. They're they're just doing a job and going home to their families and whatever. Yeah, also struggling to buy yeah, t-shirts. Yeah, pretty much, and sometimes treated like rubbish as yeah. well. Having worked in the Hong Kong offices of, of companies and around sourcing teams and gone and and and, and being credited with trying to speak up for them <laughs> because I was white and I could, you know. Um, so there's a lot of unethical unethical stuff happening in these worlds and um that's why Yvonne Schoenard you know Patagonia may not be perfect but they've raised the conversation they've been courageous they've pushed the boundaries at times and they continue to try to do so as we just saw in the past six months which was awesome yeah it's been it's been their their position from the earliest days I mean exactly I, I never the first time I encountered recycled plastic bottles would have been yeah. in the late 90s yeah. when they when they made their first fleece exactly. from it. Yeah. And that blew my mind. And now that. we're going, oh no, the microfibers, it's terrible, da-da-da. But, you know, it, it had to be, we had to go through that learning process as a sector and as an environmental movement. And we yeah, didn't, we didn't know that still. would happen, you know. And, and of course Patagonia would never have wanted that to be the yeah. outcome, the yeah. impact. So we're talking about the fashion industry and we touched on the tech industry. Where, where, where are the other big industries that have this stuff going on that are... Well, PPE. <laughs> yeah, well, that was a horror show. I mean, I yeah, know that personally. I mean, from... I don't even know where to go with that one because... Rubber gloves from Malaysia, okay, there's a lot of monitoring. There's been a lot of court case, a lot of issues around that. There's a lot happening to try to improve conditions there, which is fantastic Fantastic that the effort's being made. Um, but as for the stuff being made in China, it feels like a bit of a black hole, really, that um, it's a classic case of an industry just like seasonal decorative goods, um, toy, well, maybe not toys, but... but uh 
stuff, plastic things that, you know, the lighting thing on your, the little thing you use to film yourself and all this kind of stuff that people casings. buy these days, casings, you name it, toothbrushes, I don't know. Um, most Western retailers are buying that from agents, maybe in Hong Kong or wherever, who are then buying it maybe from another agent in mainland China who are then buying it from a factory who might have outsourced it to another factory and then maybe that was outsourced to a prison or whatever or a Uyghur forced labor camp and yeah. It's a bit of a black hole right now and and we don't have enough and I'm really glad you raised that because the focus is always on fashion and tech uh, because the brands are something we can relate to mm. and it sells, you know, it's clickbait, it sells articles. But, um, you know, these brands I can't even think of that sell in the dollar shop <laughs> and you go in and you buy or this and or that and whatever you needed. Um, the good thing about these laws coming through and requested is that they're not focused on fashion. They're saying any good imported to our country should not be made by forced labor and companies should need to check that and do the right thing of influencing improvement of working conditions or, or that a factory doesn't pollute. And that means maybe also paying the factory more to be able to afford to do wastewater treatment or uh, put in solar panels or <laughs> whatever it may be. So, um, what about agriculture? That must be a yeah, huge Yeah, well, that's a whole other conversation. There's a, there's a huge movement, the UK Ethical Trading Initiative, which does have most of the retailers of fashion, etc., cetera, um, is also this fun place where we all, you, know, you have Marks and Spencer and whatever, and everyone's talking food as well. Um, so, agricultural supply chains, um, in my expertise is more uh, manufacturing supply chains but I've been in a lot of those conversations about agricultural supply chains and, and the challenge with it is that at least if we think about importing our flowers come from Kenya and a lot of our food is coming from Spain where the workers are coming from Morocco and then there's some of them are ending up in forced labour or at least in quite exploitative horrific conditions um, or our tomatoes from Italy where there's been full on slavery of African workers who might have come over on the boats etc Um Wait, we... just explain what that's what they bring. <laughs> is it the same pattern that you mentioned before, where they they promise them a job in Italy and then they take, or is it something more sinister than that? So we do have that around Chinese workers into factories making fashion goods in Italy, um, but I believe the African workers ending up in tomato growing in Italy has been more that they came over on the boats. I mean, there would have been a trafficker to get on the boat. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean they were in contact with... I, I don't know about that. I don't think there's much of a link. I might be wrong. Um, then we've had Syrians in hazelnut growing in Turkey in, in forced labour and a lot of child labour um, situation as well. Um, you know, And I referenced the UK earlier that um, pre-Brexit, we were reliant on Eastern European workers who did not always, but were often ending up in if not incredibly exploitative, um, also modern slavery situations. And that's partly what led into the Modern Slavery Act um, being passed in 2015, finally passed, you know, being advocated for for years before that. Um, so agriculture is, um, what I was trying to say at the beginning there is, is it's even worse because people, um, tea picking in India, etc. They're really living hand-to-mouth a lot of the time. It's, it's an interesting one. You know, we've just walked around an area with rice farming and you know, sometimes you're seeing farming where in the developing world, so to speak, um, 
in the global south, um, people have more empowerment. They're not a machine treated like a robot in a factory. Um, and that's fantastic. And other times they're hand to mouth. And um, I guess you could think of India and rice and vegetables growing and things like that and, and those sort of supply chains, so to speak, um, where people are really suffering and, and Pakistan, the floods. and um, But a lot of our fruit and vegetables will come from places in Africa these days, tea, coffee, you know, we buy fair trade tea and coffee for a reason mm. because because a lot of people who've been involved in the growing of it have been hand to mouth and not paid properly and chocolate, cocoa, cocoa, there's a major child labor issue. It's probably one of the worst ones of any sector. Um, Where's the majority of cocoa coming from? Is it West coast of Africa. Oh, it is. Yeah. 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 And young kids, um, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13 year old mostly boys also girls um and these are the high street chocolate and so and actually i guess yes high street chocolate absolutely which is why cabris well so cocoa is a commodity that's traded right okay so the whole conversation is um Oh, we're not responsible because we're buying from a trader. It still has a, <laughs> it's all mixed up in the middle. Still has a should have a line of sight from its. It doesn't. Source. It historically did not have traceability. That's the move that's been happening. Um, you have a few tiny eco-ethical brands you can buy in an organic shop in the West who um, may far- source from one farm. Then you have a Tony's Chocoloni of the world who hopefully you've seen that chocolate company my kids love it (laughs) yay who and the reason i call them out is because they're all about i mean if if actually on the packet they're saying to you our industry has had a horrific recent or current history of modern slavery and child labor and their approach is to really dig in on the ground and um pay a premium um, and monitor very closely certain farms and then and try to trace that up as well. And they're saying, look, if we can do it, why can't Cadbury's and whatever as well? And but then, they are much more expensive than Cadbury's. Yeah, they are. Yeah, good point. Um, which goes back to my point on the consumer should not have to. So Switzerland, one of these business human rights due diligence laws, was trying to get at that, was trying to say, well, actually the owners should be on Nestle and everybody to do the right thing. And Nestle trying to argue, well, we do the right thing. And then this is where the world of civil society comes in of going, well, here are they all the bits where you're not doing it far enough and you could do it a lot further. Um, so it's a, this is this is what we get paid for to get into the nuance of what should a business do that is the right thing. Um, so, for example, I've sat on a panel with somebody from the cocoa industry who was describing how they monitor labor standards in the cocoa industry, and I was horrified. Having worked in the fashion sector, I was like, what? You go totally announced. You don't go unannounced. You send one person when we all the research says that you need to send at least two people to get more reliable data. Um, and you only go once every two years. Or so. I was just like, we know these issues are huge and your monitoring is rubbish. And then you're trying to tell us that you, the big chocolate makers, are doing such a great job on ethical. You're not. I'm sorry. I, you know, Patagonia have been doing better in their 50th of your size. And that's not even necessarily best practice. So if I'm a, if I'm a small company that makes x product and i want to see my supply chain and i don't want to give away that i'm coming to see the supply chain and how does it work i send somebody sure i 
unannounced, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. And then what is it that I would be looking for from the moment yeah. I arrive or even before then until yeah. the moment I leave that tells me, yeah. yes, I carry on yeah. working with these guys or I boycott them. Or I work with them to or influence with improvements, yeah, which sure. is largely what I would recommend. Yeah, you're so much more diplomatic than I <laughs> Well, I, no, I see it improve lives for workers. You know, one of the my clients right now, we've done been doing that. I'll describe how in a second. And these women are now getting maternity pay. And one of them took maternity pay, and for them it's absolutely life. Legally, they were required, but the, the company wasn't offering it, and we came in and said, no, no, you need to do that if you industry? want to carry on with uh, waste management. So, firstly, you want local experts, and, and you're looking for a social auditor. Now, some people will go, oh, but you should be doing human rights due diligence, and I would go, okay, so who do you know who knows the labor law in that country, in that area really well and knows how to do this assessment properly, is trained in how to interview workers properly in their language, confidentially, in a way that is safe for them um, to talk with management. Oh, hello, that's a social auditor. <laughs> there are social auditors around who are corrupt, um, will ask for or take bribes. Um, and so I recommend, and in my time in Human Rights Watch, I try to push this message as well, that um, in, in our advocacy that I was involved in, um, that you should be working with independent social auditors as a company, be you small or large. Um, and by independent, I mean you're not part of a quality testing company, you don't have a conflict of interest. I've walked into a factory where the auditor with me was best friends with the owner and you know there was no independence involved because they did how many, how many tens of thousands of business of testing, quality testing of their products and whatever. So there's that to be aware of. So for example, Fair Labor Association accredited auditors, um, there's a few other sort of standards around which there's a higher chance the, the social auditor is more ethical. People who are totally dedicated to worker rights as their career. That person goes, if you take Malaysia, um, you actually need a Bangladeshi and a Nepalese or whatever the workforce is. You don't need a Malaysian person to go. You need someone who can speak to the workers in their language. And then in terms of the unannounced, I say unannounced, but we tend to do semi-announced, um, which would mean up at the beginning of initiating potential business or business, you're saying sometime in the six, next six months, somebody might come on our behalf and please give them access, da-da-da. Um, and then that person gets on site. And how do they know what they're looking for? Well, a social auditor is trained in, here are the, here's the code of conduct of the Western brands, which reflects the international ILO conventions and is summarized that globally we've agreed are decent working conditions. And then I know what the local laws in that country are for each of those standards. So, for example, on child labor, the global standard is 15, but in China it's 16. Um, you're not allowed to work at the age of 15. So that's where it differs. I have a higher standard in China on that, which is really frustrating, but <laughs> that's the law. Um, and there are laws around in China, you have to give work uh, 16 to 18 year old workers health checks and things like that, which may not be the case in another country. So, so local laws differ. Um, and then the process is knowing the number of people in the workforce and uh, picking a standard that reflects a certain percentage of the workforce, confidential interviews, group interviews, one-on-one uh, -on -one interviews, 
as safe as you can get them. Then there's a whole lot of training in how to relax the worker and help them open up. And then just being totally aware that many factories, particularly if they're audited a lot, have coached their workers to lie. The management's going to be lying to you. They've got fake records, da-da-da. And learning how to get past that. And then that comes back to this bigger piece, if we took H&M, for example, of um, am I going to put a million dollars of business on the line by telling you the truth about what's really going on here? Or is my customer, the brand customer, be they a tiny little one or a big one, um, obviously it's a bigger deal with a big one, going to be understanding that, yeah, there were some workers worked 80 hours a few weeks in the past six months, but I'm willing to do some learning on how do we improve productivity, improve supervisor communication, learn how to improve quality so that we don't end up doing those midnights and we're not having excessive working hours and things like that. So that's what I used to work on a lot with factories. And so, yeah, you're trying to find someone. So I've had this colleague in Indonesia who's a real expert in that. And years back, she worked at Nike. And I know that Nike's always had this or used to have this approach a lot. And so, you know, she was coming into these sites and A, knew how what to assess. She knew how to assess. She knew how to build trust with the workers. But then the conversation is more. And I literally had the supplier say this to me a few days ago. We're so grateful that you're coaching and helping guide us on what we need to improve and how we should be doing that. And yeah, okay, it's a bit difficult when, when there's a um, some money to be spent and investment to be made, but you're really helpful to us. And that's a good thing. So it's not all, you're so terrible, you have all these things wrong with you. Um, Does it ever get dangerous if you're on this? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah it so. hasn't for me, uh, personally. I've been in the, you know, I, I did a lot of sort of sending local experts. Um, and I've rarely had, almost never had my own auditors or team who I've sent out who ended up, but I know of people in the industry who have been locked in a factory and things like that. And I've always had particularly given that I used to, I still increasingly whenever I can would book unannounced um, and offsite surveillance and offsite worker interviewing as well, um, say to the auditors, have a quite a strong conversation with the auditors that their safety comes first. And if, if it feels unsafe for you to be doing that, just back off it, it's, it's not worth it. You know, we, we, we get a feel anyway. <laughs> if your safety's at stake, that's an indicator in itself. Um, you know, I've seen surveillance teams who, in China, who open view, I'll name them, they're a fantastic firm who managed to, um, you know, really care about worker rights. The, their founder was former Adidas and, um, and Reebok when they called it Human Rights Program a long time ago, um, who managed to see a factory having goods shipped off to a local prison and back and forth. <laughs> So, um, you said earlier, one before we were recording, when we were walking around, that prison prisoners are often used in factories. Is that is that legal? I don't mean in factories. No, okay, but they they'll make garments. Factories might outsource not just garments, but especially like Christmas decorations or you know all those things we don't think about. Uh, We know we've we've had cases of stuff reported over the years. Either Chinese prisoners who are now no longer prisoners has have said, you know, when I was in prison, we made these things. There's the GSK guy, the English white guy who ended up in a prison somewhere near Shanghai or something, who said, when I was in prison, they made me work on, I forget what the product was, but um, do prison labor in factories attached to prisons. And, and then in my own experience of 
you know, sitting around the table with five, 10 or 15 people who work for all the brands and we're all those who actually are really gutsly trying to monitor deeply um, will say, yep, over the years, I, we've called it once or twice that a supplier was outsourcing um, undeclared illegally to a Undeclared, person. okay. Yeah. But there, is there a legal version of that? Because I, I... There is in the USA. I, I would see that being <laughs> a relatively useful... In the USA? Yeah, but pe people in prisons so, get bored. So the breach is of the, the contract with the brand, right. the buyer, right? You've made a declaration as a supplier that your product, I will produce your product for you here. And, but no, actually it's produced somewhere else in whole or in part. Um, so that's the breach is not Chinese law. It's a breach of yeah. my contract with this Western brand. Um, but to your point, um, you know, prison labor is legal in the USA. There's a lot of conversation and movement but is around it, that. Is it forced or is it voluntary within the prison? Well, that's, that's the, the point discussion. On. Yeah. Okay. So in China, it's forced. Right. Um, and to my understanding, almost never, rarely to almost never paid. Um, whereas in the USA, theoretically, it's sort of paid, but the rates is the discussion and whether people really can turn it down is the discussion. And... Yeah, because personally, I would. I, I think you're touching on something, which is that personally, if I was in prison, I'd rather be able to work mm. and earn some money. Yeah. Yep. Um, so in principle, but the issue becomes: can we monitor whether those people had a had a freedom of to say no, and whether they were paid properly for that? And so it varies across the USA, and and it's complicated by the fact that the prison industry is for profit rather than government run. And Japan has it as well. Um, the other di dilemma there is that prisoners are not imprisoned by their own volition. They mm -hmm. are there mm -hmm. forcefully. Yes. And if they were doing something that was good for the community, let's say they were actually making things that could put something back into, you know, I sell X gadget or widgets. Well, vegetable growing and things is exactly. a really yeah. positive yeah. story in some prisons in the USA. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. then yeah. and then that that's a it's quite a grey ethical exactly. argument whether a prisoner should be forced but i mean by the very, very nature of being in prison you're forced to do everything sure you are yeah. a you're yeah. forced to be in there yeah yeah so as by extension yeah if it's Maybe not it's, okay if it's not something that is too. damaging you your health or you're being asked to do four hours of putting together some bracelets or doing yeah. some gardening or yeah i would have thought i think a, in a chinese factory it's not four hours i'm sure yeah and yeah. It's smashing rocks um, and in fact probably in many u.s ones it's not either um, but I'm not the expert, particularly on the US ones. And I would encourage people to read on that on the Human Rights Watch website. Who, manpower going who have, you know, the human, human Rights Watch will write a five to 50 page report on something, usually about 20 pages, and really dig into that nuance and say, look, here's where it's crossing the line. And that's what I really admire about their work that, that I got so much out of um, joining them that they, they will dig in and, and really try to answer that question and help guide policymakers and, and everyone to understand um, how can we make it respect rights whilst um, dealing with reality. Yeah. With your knowledge and insight into what goes behind pretty much everything. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. but <laughs> No, but I mean everything from a consumer perspective. You, sure. you, you have a sense of what goes on in supply yeah, chains yeah, more yeah, than... Yeah. 99.9% sure. of people yeah. yeah so I mean so I've spent my life since I was about 16 being obsessed by understanding nutrition mm. I'm a nightmare to go into oh. a shop a food shop because oh, I, I pick up labels right? same, and it's, it's the same thing right? but I've never <laughs> had that issue with other now I'm not somebody who buys pointless crap I just yeah. I'm not I'm not okay. a consumer um, you know if I'm going to buy something like I've said I'll always go and buy something that I 
like these shirts, yeah. I get them made. Nice. And I and now I don't know where the cloth comes. I buy the cloth. Okay. <laughs> but I know the person who's making it for me, yeah, and I know sure. that it's a lady down the road. Yeah. And I pay her good money. I pay good. everyone good money. Yeah. All of our staff here are paid double what farmers get paid. All that <laughs> yeah. stuff, right? We live in yeah. a rarefied world. Yeah, exactly. But if I was to go into a, I don't know, a bric-a-brac shop or a Kmart or a Walmart yeah. to buy something, and I was you, mm-hmm. do you not find, do you get crippled by like, fuck, I can't buy that because I know oh, yeah. that's been... Yeah, but... You're wearing a Greenpeace t-shirt. I am, yeah, because they're amazing, because they're doing the right thing, which is advocating for the laws we need so that you don't need to worry about your shopping. But but forget a Greenpeace, I mean the (laughs) t-shirt. Did you get... The, the, do you know where that t-shirt and I that do. cotton came from? Actually, I run right. it strangely. Okay. So, but is that the case for all of your clothes no, and all your st- although stuff? although half of it's from charity shops, so that's sort of adds a well, lot like of a dilemma. Yeah. Um, that's but, a perfect answer, actually. Let <laughs> <laughs> me just polish um, or, that halo. Or whichever yeah. <laughs> Oxfam's online stores or some vestiaire for the fancy stuff. Um, but you whilst, must obviously, yeah. at some point, you, you're by, you as a, and I'm not, no, I here. definitely I, have my to, dilemma moments. You yeah. must have, right? You go into Tesco's. And, which is why we, in the world of supply chain, ethical trade, whatever you want to call it, have reached this point where we're advocating for those laws because you just cannot. It's you, inescapable. It's, it's, we've, I mean, many of us have worked on apps for a consumer to be able to walk in and look up a product or a brand and da 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 and rank them and whatever. Even that, like, even the biggest players who worked on that, it hasn't flown. You're not using it and nobody's using it Um, because it's too complicated. But what's not complicated, as I say, is what I described earlier of those steps, which should be done, which a lot of companies are still not doing, and the law should require them to do it, and the law should enforce that they do it. So right now, for example, in the USA, there's a the tariff act when Obama one of the final things he did um, was close a loophole by which historically it was a any good could be imported but actually the law said that once that loophole was closed imports of goods made under conditions of forced labor cannot be imported to the USA I mean no brainer for goodness sakes um, but also got budget to customs who've been enforcing that and under Biden it's ramped up even further and one of the few things Trump did okay um, was keep that going. So, again, you know, you, the consumer, should not have to worry about it. The government is doing their job of me, of protecting U.S. workers um, to be paid properly because they're not being undercut by people abroad not being paid properly, but somebody at the top is taking all the profits and dividends and people who are actually doing the work at either end not being paid a decent wage. So, um, yeah, I'm not going to worry about it when I walk into a store. I mean, yes, I certainly on the environmental front, I'm like, oh, I shouldn't buy the sparkly thing because now we know that all the sparkly things are bad. You know, <laughs> uh, it's just a simplify environmental dilemmas. But, um, and, and I no longer want to buy anything that's microfiber because that, you know, environmental impact of that, we know a lot more about now, etc. cetera. Um, and yet on the social side, Sure, I would encourage people to buy fair trade, certified organic um, from a fair wear brand if you're in an outdoor store. Fair wear is amazing. But again, what fair wear is teaching is what all business should have to do. So the brands who've got themselves fair wear certification are awesome. They're leaders. They're doing the right, they're doing better. Um, but even. Which are those brands? Oh, gosh. Name a couple. I can't. Fair wear. Are they, not, they're... Are they outdoor? Is yes, it, so hiking, uh, like, like North Face mountain, or no, like that, so or? North Face is not. So it started out in the Netherlands, which is why I'm struggling. My apologies. Um, 
And it's a lot of these Dutch Kelly brands Hansen. and no, they no kill, they, like they European outdoorsy brands. Ra- Ra- Rab maybe. Rab Scottish. Yeah. Oh well, yeah. it started in Not Europe. Not connected so to Scottish. I don't think there are Europe. any American brands who are fair wear. And it's interesting that it started in the Netherlands because that's sort of on the back of the stronger labor and trade union movement out of Germany, the Netherlands, Scandinavia, where H&M is, etc. Um, that this this certification got going and it's... Are they typically more focused up there on this or yes. have been for longer? Yes, I would say yes. Um, just been inputting on a, a social standard for Scandinavia, which... Um, for Scandinavian outdoors wear, which is really exciting. Um, and yeah, willing to try to push it forward. <laughs> and um, and yet, you know, the H&M owner's a billionaire. So... Hard not to be, though. Yeah. I mean, he you don't know what he or she does with all of... Is it a man or a woman, the owner? Man. Okay, so, yeah. he, and so you don't now know what the, he does with his money. Do you? No, I don't know all of what he does with his money, but I do know um, that... I've been into factories making for H&M who've complained about not being paid a, paid a fair enough price and right. um, met many, many factory owners and people in the industry who would complain that H&M could be paying a better price. Now, H&M, like in a, in a sort of reality business sense, might be saying, well, if we paid a higher price than everyone, uh, like, sort of it kind of wouldn't add up in a demand and supply situation. But then again, like how a buyer negotiates in that moment there is a point, as I described earlier, where your bonus is, and I'm not trying to call out an H&M sourcing person here, but uh, somehow <laughs> the sourcing directors have pushed price on the factories who weren't paid enough. Workers are only earning one or two days as dollars a day, whatever it is. And even if that's, or 280 US a month, even if that's... Um, $20 more than the worser brands, so Sports Direct, for example, I, as far as I understand, don't really do just about anything on ethical trade, really relative to the rest of the industry. Um, and yet, if that sourcing director is pushing, ultimately that margin is going up to somewhere and it's going to the dividends and the dividends are going to the owner billionaire. So that's why I'm calling out the billionaire thing. I'm sorry. It's mm. just, it's, it's, it's a big part of what's happening about people not getting paid properly who make our stuff. Um, we need people who are already billionaires to do a bit more of the Yvonne Chouinard thing and be courageous and go, you know what, I don't need to ever receive any more money from this company, right? Like, if, if the H&M owner did that, I would be like, yes, that's what we need done. There was a hilarious case last week. Um, Labour Behind the Label, fantastic charity who do amazing research, clean clothes campaign in this space over the past 20 years if you want to support and, or just follow them on Instagram, whatever it is. Um, they did a spoof media headline that Adidas' CEO was going co-CEO with a Cambodian worker, female Cambodian worker. And the papers took it. It ran for about three hours or something like that. Um, uh, yeah, it's just so awesome. <laughs> and the point was, you know, why should, and, and again, like Adidas's program is so much better and yet their point still stands. Adidas do so much more than Sports Direct and have done for donkey's years, for decades. And yet the CEOs of, of Adidas, Nike, whatever are being paid, I don't know the exact number, 10, 20 million a year, not just one year, but every year for 10 or 20 years. Mm-hmm. 
And that's money that, you know, okay, if you earn 10 million over 10 years, I'm not, I'm maybe not going to begrudge you that. But if you're earning that every year and you know that people in your supply chain are only earning $400 a month, and that means, that doesn't mean, oh, but they're in a developing country, it's fine. No, they're living in a slum. They're living eight or 10 girls to a room with a concrete floor, with no proper shower, with barely able to sleep because there's this fan going and you know, you're squashed together on the ground. They don't have a proper bed. And, and they're on a truck, 50 or 100 of them. You can see a photo of this on my website, squashed together, dying as they travel to work, having accidents that maim them and lose limbs. And that's why I'm calling out the, the execs at the top and us as investors in our pensions and whatever, taking that money when we need to share. <laughs> we need to share it out. It's not okay that, that workers die going to work making our stuff. It's, the system's not designed that way, though, is it? The capitalist system. And I know we're talking about no, creating a revolution of yes, that kind. But system-wise, we're pushing the laws. So please get behind those. Um, support labor behind the label, Oxfam, whatever. Um, and then secondly, system is a result of our human behavior. And every day on many, many issues, we all grapple with this question of generosity and sharing and where is the line. And I'm saying, actually, we need to share more as, as human beings and as particularly those who um, are already have already made their first few millions. <laughs> be it hundreds of millions from your position which is a rarefied one of of knowledge i don't mean sitting on that chair <laughs> do if you could wave your magic wand and reduce consumption of product or increase the pricing for product and the and the consequences of both of those decisions mm. what would you which one would you take and and why because it seems like they're both they're two sides of the same. Mm. So if we, I'd, I'd offer a third one, which is luxury tax. So uh, okay. the higher price the product, the more the tax on it that then goes into let's say enforcing these laws to make sure the people who made the product are paid properly and the factories making it. You know, we're working on the environmental issues around the production as well. So. Luxury tax is a thing, but it's not part of our conversation these days. And yet, if you can afford to buy something for £300, let's call it a sweater, versus people who can only afford H&M or whatever it is, um, really, which one, which one should be paying to help people get paid more? Well, this is decently? the argument with tax, right? With billionaires. Absolutely. Yeah. Same argument. Yeah. Yeah. And yet, I'm saying for the consumption itself because a lot of the pushback is, oh, don't tax me for working hard. I'm like, I'm sorry, people who make your clothes work really hard too. Um, but okay, let's part that conversation and let's go, well, the privilege of being able to buy something at, you know, a few hundred, a few thousand, 10,000, whatever it is, um, you know, handbags for $20,000. Yeah. But there it, there but, are luxury taxes on that, but we should, we should be talking, we should be doing that more. But then now we bring in the environmental impact because the number one way to to protect the environment is to stop buying yeah, so okay, much. Yeah, okay, volume stop side, yeah. So if we, this is the question that I'm asking, yeah, really, yeah. is so where... So the bit where, in the middle of those people who are buying so much fashion that they've got like 500 pieces in their wardrobe and, that, yeah, and, they're, and they're not millionaires, they're just, just some are, normal yeah, exactly. kid. Yeah, yeah, people, yeah, 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 yeah. They go yeah, shopping, yeah. that's their pastime. Yeah, and there's that 
buy it and return it thing going on and, and like I Instagram photo and or I TikTok it and then I return disposable it. fashion absolutely if so on that piece that. there was a proposal um, a few years ago for a two cent tax on so so there's bits of it so my argument would be remove all taxes and rates on charity shops or people selling secondhand and vintage and pre-loved and put um, particularly from from anything made with microfibers of, of man-made fabrics, um, tax that significantly, um, natural fibers less, but anything that's uh, not secondhand, essentially. And then spend some of that money on um, funding a repair, reuse industry, a repair industry and a tailoring industry. I mean, regenerate our high streets with actual little shops where people bring something in and talk to a human being and get their piece tailored like you just did. Oh my God, that's what we need. We know we need that. And yet it is cheaper to walk in and buy a polyester microfiber sh shredding five, you know, $5 t-shirt from some brand who's barely checked anything um, than to buy an almost brand new, I frequently buy garments in charity shops in the UK and go out and wear it a week later and someone goes, oh, that's such a nice dress or that's such a nice top because it, it, sometimes it even has the label still on it, the, the tag, the swing tag, because it was brand new. People throw it away. And yet tax-wise, our government is incentivizing me to buy the imported one of carbon emissions from those ships, shipping it all the way from Bangladesh or Vietnam or China or whatever. We, you know, that's the bit we need to work on is we tax new goods and, and actually we have a movement for a tax called the carbon border adjustment tax, which means that anything imported to, so the EU is looking at passing this, um, or said they will pass this, uh, bring this into effect. Um, anything imported from a country where a certain percent, they don't have a high percent of renewables, clean energy used in, in manufacturing um, will be taxed higher. And that's the way it should be. And that's what we need in the UK as well, and the US needs the same. And um, that's that's going against the whole WTO free, you know, or at least um, yeah, free trade movement. Um, but it's what the world needs. But so does it get to a point where things are taxed too much that the regular person in the street can't afford them? No, that's what I'm saying. Like the regular person should be in, it should it should be cheaper to buy from charity shops, and from and there's shops, so yeah. much product there that we are shipping it off to other countries where it sits there in piles and and it's it's waste. But that requires a so when I was a kid or Depop I, 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 or wherever you want to buy it. But I grew up piss poor, yeah, and I used to get embarrassed that my grand would go in charity shops. Okay, but that's a shift we need to make. So as that's a society. the shift. So that has to that's be a, that's a that's a lot a of people movement. Dream you know, a PR person, Depop has made that cool. What's Depop? Depop is where young people buy and sell pre-loved fashion to each other. And it's huge. It's a huge part of the market now in, in the UK and I think maybe a few other countries as well. Um, go on Depop, you'll find Adidas, whatever it is, and people are buying and selling it to us and they're all cool. <laughs> and there's a bunch of other competitors like that. Right. So there's this probably enough clothes in, in distribution right now, in circulation. Yeah, right we now, never we need to make any more clothes. Else, we right? don't, yeah. I mean, I can empty yep. my wardrobe. I've got like Shoes, eight of these things. bags, you name it. Nobody yeah. needs eight shirts. Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, we criticize this younger generation, but in a sense, unconsciously, they're reflecting. Um, they're, they're just getting on with using Depop and whatever and not even thinking about it. They're just like, yeah, it's, you know... A, Bought these great New Balance fancy cool shoes on Depop. Why not? Why wouldn't I? Um, 
what are the other ones? Um, Vestager is the sort of fancy end. Um, the Oxfam store, uh, eBay was the original. <laughs> There's ways that, that, that millions of people are already sharing pre-loved. Uh, sorry, ASOS, very trendy brand. Oh, that, so ASOS was kind of the... ASOS cool. is shoes? No, ASOS is fashion for trendy young people kind of okay, thing in the me. UK and, and Europe, in fact. And they have a section of their website which is all pre-loved and helps vintage sellers across the UK sell their product. And then that's been duplicated somewhat by, I think it's Misguided. One of um, So Boohoo and Misguided are the ones we used to all sort of say, they're so terrible. They were you know, um, horrific fast fashion, no ethical, no eco. Because it's what consumers want um and and those markets have opened up those companies are doing that as well or selling pre-loved as i think misguided is at least on their website so so that is driven by the consumer demand rather than it's driven by both it's driven by a couple of things so they're investors these are listed companies and their investors um have people like me who will get noisy or, or get annoyed with my pension fund if it's in boohoo mm -hmm. and What's boohoo is a British, was the leading British fast fashion online brand um, in the past 10 years, um, multi-billion turnover brand who were then in a lot of hot water in the past three or four years for having no ethical trade program and um, being the biggest buyer out of Leicester where in North England or Central Midlands where... Um, a lot of workers were found to be in conditions of slavery and if not exploitation or exploitation, if not modern slavery. So um, we've had a lot of scandal around that. And as a listed company and a baby of the stock market, investors went, oh, my God, I'm associated with this unethical brand. So there's been a lot of engagement with their CEO. There's been a QC do a big report and all sorts going on. Um, and, and companies like this are, so when you say the consumer is pushing, well, the consumer is somewhat pushing, but really it's more um, the circular thing of an NGO, a non-governmental organization, a charity like Labor Behind the Label Clean Clothes Campaign, who please go follow them on social media, whatever. Um, they will do an investigation, find out these issues. They'll write the report, get it out to the media. Now the media, it's not necessarily that Boohoo's own customers are worried. It's like, the mum of the kid who was buying from Boohoo reads the Times and the Times had this story or the Guardian reader reads it and tells their friends and or the Guardian reader reads it and goes, oh my goodness, my, my pension's invested in that company. I don't want to be invested in that company. And so investors are actually probably really the noisiest, which is why I do work with helping them understand how do they analyse whether a company is doing the right thing or what it should be doing better to not have this happen to them, essentially. Um, because it was a, a really horrific um, uh, Boohoo stock price tanked and, and things like that. So it's a big business implications for them. And they, they were not allowed to list their products on some other online retailers' sites. And there's all sorts of business implications like that going on. So the consumer role is there, but it's unfortunately, it's not that when a brand has a scandal, people stop buying it. That's not actually what happens in reality. Um, there may be a slight dent, but usually it's more the people who own their pensions and um, are fussed about it. Um, so your pension has more strength than you realize or your investments. 
um, and that's having an impact as well on the ground, which which is which is a real positive, and I'm touching the wood here. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to finish up. I, if I don't ask you this question and get a couple of straight answers from you, I'm going to get. <laughs> I know at least half a dozen people who are going to give me a poke in the, oh, in the eye for it. What's this one? Well, no, it's it's going back to what, what you started earlier, which is the brands that you avoid. Yeah, and then also the brands that you you go out your way to frequent because of their yeah. standards. So we've got to Scottish Woolen Mill. Well, look, I'm going to start with the ones I frequent because that's easier and more important. And that's where I want people to go, right. which is that firstly, just frequent pre-loved because environmentally that's what the world needs. And secondly, if I'm spending with Oxfam, they're advocating for all these business human rights improvements. They're working with brands who are trying to do the right thing. They're helping workers. They're dealing with workers in slums and helping them get out of slums and all that, and the really gutsy work. So I start at the Oxfam website, which has an, it's all that you can sort by brand on the side. You can tick the boxes for the brands you like, and they're, they're mapping all across all their stores in the UK. And, and it's just like and people, Amazon. People donate those clothes typically yeah that's how it used to be yeah no we do 30, i take my things and i'll drop them off at their store and then they're going through and looking at the label and they rate it by quality poor good you know brand new whatever um and then they rate it by size and blah 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 and fabric and everything but you can go armani and nike and da 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 i'm not i'm serious yeah On, in no Oxfam. you can yeah oxfam <laughs> online store has a list down the left of all the brands be they hugo boss whatever and you you take all the ones you like, and it only feeds you those. And now you're going in my size. I'm medium, da da da, and and then you fill your bag, and they ship it just like Amazon. So, Oxfam's the first one, <laughs> the main one to start. And then if they don't have what you want, then you know if you if you if you can if you can move yourself into remembering that you supporting charity stores is what is needed for other people in the UK right now, get it into a charity store because you're making it, you're giving them money. As you just said, they get the things for free and you buying anything there is helping the good work they're doing. Um, but you're also helping prevent a lot of landfill. You're having a major environmental mm -hmm. impact and you're stopping things having to be shipped all the way from around the world with all those ships and, you know, let's not even get into the carbon footprint and the marine impacts and all the impacts of things being shipped all over the place, let alone the wastewater treatment and da-da-da and then the growing of cotton and that's desertification impacts, etc. Um, and then I mentioned, yeah, jump on the Fairway website if you're buying outdoors hiking gear and you're into buying European brands. Um, jump on the Fair Labour Association website if you want sporting goods brands and you want to know, but that's, but essentially like, I don't have a big problem with buying New Balance, Puma, Adidas, Nike. I'm a bit annoyed that Nike pay the CEO so much and their sports players and whatever and because I know that that, work, that money could be going to workers. But I know they sort of, if I have to buy sporting goods, then we don't have a lot of sort of smaller niche ethical players. Um, Puma's probably the smallest of them. <laughs> and then, yes. What about outside of apparel? What about? Yeah, I know. I'm about to Marks go and to. Versus Tesco's. Oh, yeah, you know, yeah. do really try. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they're not perfect but um they try um, i avoid ag. sports direct because of how they treated the workers in their uk factories um let alone the fact that they barely seem to look at what's happening in the global supply chains making their products which is dunlop and carry more and these kind of brands they sell in their stores um and then when we get into the sort of smaller eco ethical brands um it's difficult 
because there are good people really trying to do the good, right thing who don't necessarily know what they're doing. And, you know, I gave that long and boring explanation earlier of like what it takes to assess labor conditions in a factory. And that's just assess. That's just one snapshot. That's not all the work that's done over time to, you will, if you're doing it properly, you will find problems and you will need to work on influencing those. And then that takes knowledge of, well, how do I help? What, how, what does good look like? Which is a whole area. So it's really hard to do that as a tiny brand. And even if you're organic certified and fair trade certified, they've been, yes, I would buy that over not certified. And yet, that's not. That doesn't mean it's it's fantastically ethical, and people were definitely paid what even those th brands think people are paid, um, which is why I keep going on about. It's not necessarily what you buy or who you buy from. It's get behind these charities: Oxfam, Greenpeace, Labor Behind the Label, Clean Clothes Campaign, Fashion Revolution. Follow them on whichever social media you're on. Maybe pay them a few pounds a month to do their good work. They are advocating for the laws needed. Human Rights Watch. They're causing the change that means that you don't need to worry about it and the world is becoming a better place. So that is my big message. It's, and, and, you know, they'll help you have the pre-written email to email to your MP to ask your MP to call for these laws or your representative in the US and whatever. And that is causing change. So that's causing way more change than us trying to figure out which brand to buy every day. I can't think of a single store here that fits that model of either a charity store or yeah, a... Yeah, okay, in, in Bali, and I was just walking past them all last there's night. so many clothing stores. Yeah. I'm not... I'm, I'm, I very much got the West in my mind as I'm thinking. So, yeah, it yeah. is a, cha a challenge as you walk around Bali where there are all these little brands we've never heard of and well, everything. It, even in most developing countries, does that even exist as a thing, um, a, the charity? Yes. Because most people aren't giving oh, their clothes away, stores, are they? No, although online sales of second online sales of second hand, yes. Um it's it's big in China. Is it? I think it might be quite a thing in India. I'm not I haven't been to India for a while. Um as a, as a country is doing more online retail, it just it's just doing that. People want to eBay things to each other basically. So you can buy them online. <laughs> Somebody needs to get onto that in Bali because actually... Yeah, I mean, it, it may exist. Indonesia is a huge place. There's a big internet industry. It probably exists here and we're just not aware of it um, for not necessarily Bali, but Indonesia and Indonesian. Um, if I was, a, you know, here in Bali walking around, I guess what I'd do is probably be buying the organic or fair trade if, if they were around. Um, and other than that, they're natural fibres. Uh, versus non-natural fibers, environmental, and to some extent, you could even argue a social impact. As I well. get my business colleagues to bring Patagonia in when they arrive. They're, 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 <laughs> well, there is that. They're always bringing something. Oh, and you know that Patagonia <laughs> have their own on their website pre-loved section that's as right. well, yeah. and Finisterre have their yeah. reskinned, and you know. That's... I bought a rare Pataloa shirt off of there recently. And you can do this with tech. So my past few. MacBooks were refurbished and were fantastic. My iPhone was refurbished. You oh, can, really? Yeah, you can get it on the Apple website, apple.com, and you'll, you can buy, refer, it'll tell you, and um, you can credit your old one, and they'll turn that into a refurbish for someone else, and um, it'll get cleaned up, and, and they guarantee it because you bought it through them. But you can also buy on Back to Market, which is a separate website. So that's a big thing in the UK right now. Um, you see it all over London as you take the tube around. This advertisement of this secondhand tick is, I mean, it is like brand new, basically, for those of us who don't need the latest number 15 or whatever it might be. You, you have removed my mortified embarrassment as a seven-year-old of being dragged into Oxfam by my grandmother. <laughs> 
that good. I'm glad to hear that. No, I mean, you should be proud to be in these places. They, they do such good work. I used to hide in the corner work. until she was ready to leave. I didn't want anyone to see me in a secondhand store. You know, no, they're great. And, and they have some, they have a lot of new product these days because people buy, it's too easy to buy and throw away things which still have the swing tag and oh it didn't fit me i got home and it didn't fit me um where can find people find you if they want to follow you on social media so i'm kate a larson on linkedin and uh my website is supply es change that's for environmental change so supply chains environmental social change supply es change.com and i'm a little bit noisy on twitter as katie k-a-t-i-e-a-l um yeah, try to kick me off. <laughs> really? What did they try kicking you off for? No, I, I should kick myself oh, off. Oh, you should kick yourself <laughs> off. Oh, okay. I can't figure out what to tweet. I look at you it don't and know I what go, to tweet. There's, oh, there's too much to too say many things. and not enough yeah, exactly. space there's to say much, it. Well, this is true. Yeah, this is kind of, but, but I also, I, fo- I have a lot of my dialogue with people in the human rights and environmental world there and we're sort of sharing information to each other and insights, so I find it useful. And, and ethical fashion debates happen and people don't know this or do know that and we learn from each other so i find twitter useful for that but i probably spend too much time there and then on instagram katie suaveco s-u-a-v-e-c-o so that's from when i was working on my own eco-ethical fashion brand um where, Cambodian workers. where you'll see a video of me chasing chickens around looking ah, at yeah no, I know you're lucky not. I didn't I didn't actually <laughs> um, but no LinkedIn Kate A-L um, is is the main pace I sort of post more useful things for people in business and um, and we'll be posting about the responsible sourcing course once that's up so it's been incredible yeah. uh, typically I it's the scientists who I interview where I walk, walk away going holy shit I've just had my <laughs> my world view turned inside out and upside down um but you've done it on this one so <laughs> yes, thank you much going on so well and you know all credit as you said before to the workers who raised the the courage to raise the issues the villagers who raised the water pollution issues to greenpeace and put themselves on the line doing that the greenpeace people the whoever at my fashion revolution oxfam whoever it is clean labor behind the label you know people who get paid a lot less than the rest of us and really put their lives on the line sometimes to get these stories through. So and we, people like you. Sorry? And people like yeah, you. Yeah, we battled away at times. Yeah. <laughs> had our moments. So <laughs> yeah, um, and done my charity work as well, working in Human Rights Watch. I'm a trustee of the rights practice if you're interested in China human rights issues and they're now doing Malaysia work as well. I'm an unseen who do amazing work. So amazing. yeah, Great. thank you Thanks, for Kate. having our voices. That's been, <laughs> thank been, you. been wonderful having you here. Let's go Great. and chase some more chickens. Yes, let's go. Find those chickens. <laughs> thank I you. like I like free range chickens. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we've got Good. some. Thanks.